Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, columnist Brian Lilly tells us why Hollywood celebs are really wrong on Canadian oil and gas. Queen's University Health Sciences professor Megan Edgelow has a lot of good things to say about routines and our mental health. And BC's Privacy Commissioner Michael McAvoy has serious reservations about our data being stored outside of Canada. So, let's get started. Brian Lilly joins us from Toronto now. Mr. Lilly is a columnist with Post Media, a good friend of this program. Brian, good morning. Welcome back. A good morning. It feels like I'm in Vancouver already, though, because our temperature is about the same, and it is a rainy Vancouver-like spring day here in Toronto. Um, you know, so as we're opening everything back up, the rain's keeping us in so far. Well, so far, at least. And uh, But isn't it nice to see things opening back up? I got a couple of things to talk to you about this morning. We were going to spend most of our time talking about the piece you wrote the other day about Mark Ruffalo and Hollywood celebrities being on the wrong side of Canadian oil and gas. Mm. And we'll go there first. But secondly, this whole business of Melanie Jolie, our convener-in-chief, uh, even the uh, Post Media editorial board got their backs up after that one. So let's go at this methodically. Mr. Lilly, let's talk about Canadian oil and gas. That is our question of the day here. Uh, responding to the Leger survey just out this morning, 78% of Canadians, to one degree or another, on side with the idea of increasing our oil and natural gas production to reduce world dependence on Russia. A surprising number of Canadians on side, Brian, despite, of course, the uh, our betters from Hollywood telling us what we should be thinking. Well, I think that's because Canadians look around the world and see what's going on and and realize that we offer part of the solution to weaning the world off Russian oil and gas. Now, is this the entire solution? No. Um, is it a uh, an immediate, you know, we can fix it this week solution? No. But is it part of the solution? Absolutely. Unfortunately, our current federal government doesn't see it that way. Mm. Uh, when he was in Europe... Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was standing at a podium with Mark Root, the Dutch Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, Root leads one of those countries, the Netherlands, that is dependent upon Russian you oil bet. and gas and kept saying that he wanted a substitute energy supply. Boris Johnson said that Britain would work with their leaseholders to increase British production because the Brits still have a, a decent amount of oil production. North Sea, yeah. Boris Johnson. Yeah, Boris Johnson very committed to, um, you know, dealing with climate change and reducing emissions, but still said he would work to increase domestic production. Trudeau was asked directly that question and, and punted. So, you know, Canadians in general, and, you know, at 78%, it's across party lines. Yes, it's of not, course, yeah. Know, it's not just a Western Canadian thing. It's not just conservatives and, you know, uh, People who are denying climate, this is everybody saying, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's do it. Unfortunately, the government's not there. Now, the oil companies could increase their production. Part of what Trudeau could be doing is doing whatever he can to get government out of the way of, of increasing supply and getting supply to market, which is the big problem. And, right. and that was my problem with Mark Ruffalo and those celebrities who signed that, uh, uh, started this campaign against Coastal GasLink. That's a pipeline that should be completed. We should be exporting our liquefied natural gas 
to places like India and China so that they're getting cleaner fuel than what they're using right now, which is coal. And they're getting it from a reliable, environmentally friendly uh, supplier like Canada instead of funding Putin's war in Russia. That could be happening. Yeah, interesting you would mention India, too, because, of course, Brian, just a couple of days, two days ago, India announced a new deal with Russia to purchase even more oil and uh, petrol uh, supplies uh, in rubles, nonetheless, at some kind of friendly discount, thereby again propping up Putin. When uh, And, and I would think in, in the absence of alternatives as being part of the problem there, Brian. Yeah. Absence of alternatives and the West not being a good friend to India in in just the same way that Western countries until Putin invaded. um, You know, we've been on again, off again with Ukraine and we've done the same thing with India. And under Prime Minister Modi, India has been moving closer to the West during the Cold War. A lot of people would forget that they that Indian governments would sometimes cozy up to the communist dictatorships of the USSR and to uh, China, it was part of you know getting rid of you know, the colonial uh, structures that they lived under after they got their independence, and uh, I believe it was forty nine. They 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 decided well we don't want to you know be too cozy with the Western countries like Britain and and the United States, so they would cozy up to that. Modi's been trying to advance the Indian economy. Mm-hmm. We haven't been good friends to them all the time. We've we've blocked them from being able to defend themselves. Uh, against uh, incursions and attacks from uh, places like China and places like Pakistan, where they have border skirmishes. So we're not being good friends to them. And so, yeah, they're turning towards the guy that we're trying to punish right now. Right. These things may seem unconnected, but they're not. There's a very complex web going on. And, of course, Mr. Trudeau had an excellent opportunity because Mark Rutte and uh, Boris Johnson were not the only NATO leaders to pull Canada aside and go, so look, um, what's the new energy strategy? We really need one, Canada. We offered nothing except an increase of 200,000 barrels a day, which we could do without too much effort, but nothing beyond that. And it's interesting, back to this this Leger poll that's out this morning, Brian, with that rather significant number of Canadians in every corner of the country, and that's what you just said, uh, being in support of the notion of increasing oil and natural gas production to reduce world dependence on Russia, and that includes Quebec, which, of course, has been told, we've been told by the government of Quebec that we have no social license to do anything vis-a-vis a natural gas or oil or pipelines in that province whatsoever. It is completely unacceptable. Well, as it turns out, it may be to the government of Quebec, Brian, but as far as Quebecers, folks like you and me, uh, it's fine. It's it's not yay, go, go, but with conditions, absolutely. So the government, even in Quebec, is very misleading on this one. Well, you know, it, it's interesting that uh, in the current conservative leadership race, there's a former Quebec premier who actually backed Alberta oil and gas, mm-hmm. even when he was leading the, the province, that's Jean Charest. Um, and I was talking to him about the, that earlier this week. So Quebec goes up and down, and and it can be massaged, but it takes leadership from the prime minister. We don't have that from Justin Trudeau. He... You know, during that time when everyone was discussing social license, he amplified those voices opposed to what was a very common sense idea mm-hmm. of stop importing Saudi and Russian oil and put in the um, Energy East pipeline. He amplified the voices who were against it. He gave them an effective veto. 
yeah, Quebec is always portrayed as being a a monolithic place where everyone holds the same uh, left of center progressive ideas, and and they're all exactly what the Toronto Star wants you to believe, and, right. and they all line up beautifully with CBC. That's not the case. I've lived in Quebec. I've worked in Quebec. I've spent a lot of time there over the years. It is a complex area, just like you know, in British Columbia, there are differing views in different regions on issues. And downtown Vancouver is going to be different than Kitimat, is going to be different than Chilliwack. And Quebec is much the same. Sure. Uh, so, you know, with leadership, that pipeline could have been shepherded through by Justin Trudeau. And this poll is showing that there is support for Canadian energy in that province. Sometimes you've got to sell it right. There was tremendous support for a project called Energy Saguenay that would have taken Canadian, uh, Western Canadian natural gas and exported it through a port uh, near uh, Lac Saint-Jean, the Saguenay region. That was actually just shut down two weeks before the bomb started dropping. Yeah. Brian, almost out of time here. We're going to have to have, we're just going to have to have another conversation about uh, Melanie Jolie because that's a whole other story. Uh, but uh, do you sense that in the wake, particularly of the, of, to the, of this morning's poll, that there might be significant enough pressure from ordinary Canadians to cause the government of Canada to reconsider this bizarre position they've staked out? I, I, I don't really think so. They, Justin Trudeau still has his green blinders on. He's wedded to saying that, yes, we need to help people off of Russian oil and gas, but he's committed to doing that through renewables. Well, if you think getting excess Canadian oil and gas to Europe is going to take too long, Imagine trying to say, well, we'll wean them off it by building renewables. Mm -hmm. That's a long-term effort uh, in and of itself. He hasn't shown any inclination that he's going to change things. He is just digging in on his long-held position and keeping those green blinders firmly in place. Indeed. Well, the uh, the pollsters tell us one thing, and uh, so that is definitely going to be pressure, like it or not, on the government, and well, it should be. Brian Lilly... Always a pleasure. Uh, we'll get to Melanie Jolie next time. Thanks for this. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. Let's turn our attention to an article that caught our attention the other day. The article is entitled, What You Do Every Day Matters, The Power of Routines. And from the article, let me just quote this. Early in the pandemic, researchers pointed to the value of daily routines to cope with change. As the two-year anniversary of the pandemic coincides with the relaxation of public health measures across the country, reflecting on routines and their value is useful when moving toward a new normal. The author of this piece, Dr. Megan Edgelow, an assistant professor and researcher in health sciences, joining us from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Edgelow, Megan, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Before we get too far into all of this, and this is all about mental health, and we are past the two-year point, Megan, and we know there have been significant disruptions to the mental health and well-being of Canadians. How important to you is routine? Yes, it's something I think about a lot. And my background um, before being a researcher is as an occupational therapist. And so a lot of the work I've done over the years in mental health with people has been about people's daily lives and how do routines play out and how can we build in regular routines that contain all the things that people need to do 
to manage their lives, to stay healthy, and ultimately to build in meaningful things that make us want to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, it's really um, fun. And that, I'm sorry, it's a routine, would, just in terms of routines as, as, a, as a degree of importance to adults, we tend not to think about the importance of routines to us, despite the fact that they are terribly. But when it comes to our kids, Megan, it's all about routine. Rinse and repeat. Do it again. Do it again. And, and develop those habits around routines. We see that as being a very valuable tool in child rearing. And yet, in many ways, we sort of lose connection with routine as we grow into adults. It's true. And often, um, you know, if people are having trouble getting out the door on time in the morning, you know, being late for things, not fitting in the things they want to do, like exercising or preparing meals um, at home or, you know, finding enough time to meet up with a friend occasionally. Um, If people find themselves living that way and having felt over the pandemic that their time was sort of happening to them versus making choices about mm-hmm. um, how they use their time. It could be a good time to reflect on, um, you know, what do you have that's existing that's working and also what could use a tune-up um, and what do you want to build in um, now that maybe we can be more social um, and now that there are more opportunities to do things outside of our homes as well. I think also perhaps more of us are recognizing the importance of routines, Megan, than perhaps ever before, given the fact that in many cases, for millions of Canadians too, this is not just a select group, many of us have had to, well, change, significantly change our routines over the past couple of years. And now that we're coming to a point of re-emerging as uh, people with each other, those routines are going to have to undergo yet another series of changes, aren't they? Absolutely. And especially as people find themselves going back, maybe more face-to-face to to work um, or in some kind of hybrid situation and where we try to find a balance and and hopefully have less changes and, um, you know, restrictions coming back in or going out as we do find more of a balance. People can maybe make more of a consistent choice about how they want their days to play out. Um, and one thing, too, that we know that often routines have been a bit maligned as being boring, as yeah. being stuck in a rut. Um, but research is telling us more and more that when people have routines at work for things that have to happen every day, if we can do them in a routinized way, it often actually gives us more cognitive space to think about other things, to be more creative, because we don't have to worry or be anxious about the things we know we're going to have to do anyway. That's right. And and a lot of us, especially in the workplace, have routines. My routine, my daily routine, Megan, very, very important, too, for me in my business, consists of sitting down with a cup of coffee at the computer and going through a very specific list of websites and newspapers. I have that routine. I repeat it every morning so that 15 minutes into my day, I've already got a good handle on what's going on in the big bad world, and I'm kind of ready for it. And uh, that that's the sort of routine that you're talking about, too, isn't it? Absolutely. And that gives it a really good example of the power of setting yourself up for feeling centered to begin your day and to know, you know, for yourself as a journalist, to know what are you going to have to be paying attention to and what might you be speaking with people later on in the day as well about. Let's assume that uh, uh, over the last couple of years, 
Even those of us who are more or less accustomed to routines and rather rely on them, let's just assume for a few moments that all of that stuff has been scrambled because of the last two years and the weirdness of it all. And suppose we're sort of trying to get ourselves back on some kind of even keel this morning, Dr. Richlow. So talk to us about fine-tuning or perhaps a tune-up to the daily routine. Yeah, I think if you don't already use something like a calendar on your smartphone or have a day timer, that can be really the basic building block of a way to, um, you know, get things centered, know what plays out in a regular way, maybe even have repeating events if you're using some technology. Um, And then also think about the little things that people need on a regular basis. You know, how much exercise are you getting? What are what are you doing for exercise? Are there ways to build in short walks or bike rides or active transportation um, into the schedule? And then also one of the major foundations of health and a part of an important part of anybody's routine, regardless of age, is sleep. Yes. Are you going to bed at a regular time? Are you trying to get up at a regular time? Are you making sure that sleep window is appropriate to your age? Um, And also, we don't want to just build in kind of the, you know, the basics to the routine. We want to make sure that there are social opportunities, that there are things happening outside the house. Um, community activities and things that make you want to get out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that uh, part of that can be just an investigation process. So I'm finally allowed to reintegrate with fellow human beings in social settings. It's been a while. So I'm going to kind of tiptoe back into it. A lot of people are quite anxious, Meg, Meg, Megan, to get out there and mix mix it up. But they're still, you know, uh, with safety considerations and so on, they're still apprehensive. So a a lot of people are taking baby steps to reintegrate and that's not a bad routine either is it i agree i think small steps see where you're comfortable don't maybe push yourself you know all the way into the crowd at the very first time you're out um and also think about i think there's a lot of research saying that people's social relationships have changed and some of us are emerging with less friendships than we had pre-pandemic so like you said, looking to what's going on um, in your neighborhood, what's going on at the public library, um, what might there be that we haven't participated in, in before where we could perhaps meet some new people socially as well. And one of the things you talked about earlier on in our conversation was this this sense, this this sense of just being a half step out of sync with life. You're just always playing catch up. You're never quite on top of things. And a lot of that, uh, relating to the conversation about routines, a lot of that, Megan, might have to do with sleep, mightn't it? Oh, I, I completely agree. And one thing that we know about sleep research, and this also speaks to routines, is that a lot of us on a day off, quote unquote, from work or whatever it is that maybe, um, you know, forces us out of bed in the morning or, or whatever time um, we're getting up, often we are tempted on a more discretionary day to get up later. Um, and research shows that that is not usually helpful for sleep routines and that the best thing you can do is try and keep a consistent bedtime and a consistent wake-up time. Ah, the, the big difference on the weekend or on the day off being you get to put your feet up and have that second cup of coffee. You don't have to dash out the door. Yes, absolutely. 
So let's talk a little bit about, uh, in, in, in our final few moments here, because you, you talk about in, in your article, and it's a great piece of the conversation, by the way, well done. Uh, you talk about influential artists and, and looking at the lives of, of successful creative people. And surprisingly, a lot of those people are quite routine oriented, especially uh, people with, with that creative bent. You could look at, walk into an artist studio uh, and, you know, there's 17 different paintings uh, in various uh, stages of development. Uh, that takes a lot of organization, and a lot of the organization depends on routine, right? Absolutely, and I think sometimes the misnomer about creativity is we think that it's somehow chaotic or, you know, that um, having routine might be restricting, but um, when we've looked at influential artists, musicians, painters, exactly, often they have very prescribed ways that they work. And I would say often when you speak um, to writers or you hear about the routines of journalists, it's similar in that they start the day in a particular way um, or have protected writing time. Um, And I think the reality is that um, artists are productive like any other worker. um, And it makes sense that they would also need foundational routines um, that give them the mental space to be more creative um, but also support all the sort of task-oriented things that would be involved in creating art for anyone. Indeed. The uh, piece at the conversation.com, friends, I recommend it highly. What you do every day matters. The power of routines, written by Dr. Megan Edgelow, who you can follow on Twitter, by the way, at M. Edgelow. Megan, thanks very much for this. A pleasure to have you on board. We must do this again sometime. Thank you very much, Sterling. My pleasure. British Columbia has moved away from something known as domestic residency of data. This move happened early in the pandemic health crisis of close to two years ago. The move allows British Columbia's health and education information to be shared across geographic borders into other legal jurisdictions. It was done through ministerial orders to allow for health data sharing, to battle the virus, and to allow for online schooling. These orders did not go before the legislature. The government has said, oh, stop worrying. Uh, Data being stored in other countries is nothing to be worried about. The privacy commissioner of British Columbia disagrees. Quote, there is indeed much to be concerned about. The privacy commissioner of British Columbia is Michael McAvoy. He joins us now from Victoria. Commissioner, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Great to have you with us, Michael. Why do you object so strenuously to our data being shared offshore? And before you, you get to your objections, if you wouldn't mind, sir, could you uh, uh, just flesh out what, what has happened here and exactly where our information is being shared? Well, it's a good question. And just uh, I might just elaborate a little bit upon your introduction, because what's happened with Bill 22, which was passed in the legislature in November, just a few months ago, in fact, made permanent changes to what is called our data residency requirements. And so what, prior to these changes, effectively for public bodies, so whether it's government, your school board, your local municipality, whatever it was, it essentially prohibited those public bodies from storing and accessing British Columbians' data, personal information outside the country. Right. And, and look, this posed a bit, uh, this posed something of a challenge for some public bodies, uh, universities and health authorities, for example, who wanted to use new technologies uh, to to perhaps uh, improve or provide education to kids or improve healthcare, or whatever? Um, those companies sometimes would be based in, for example, the U.S. Sure. And so 
that posed a, a challenge. And so what the government has done is made changes to the legislation, which gives all public bodies actually greater flexibility uh, to access those kinds of platforms. But my message to public bodies has been clear. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And if you are going to look at options, which take the, the personal information of your, yours and mine or your, your children's outside the country, you need to carefully assess the risk. And the law continues to require uh, all public bodies, if they're going to do that, to, to ensure they assess the risk and make sure they put in reasonable security measures uh, to protect the uh, information of British Columbians. Commissioner, in these troubled times, we are more than ever before aware of the ability of bad actors to hack into just about anything they want to. How vulnerable is our information stored in these foreign uh, destinations? Well, uh, that is a question that every single public body who's considering this uh, using a company outside the country has to consider. And if it poses a risk, um, to the uh, information of British Columbia, it should not be stored outside the country. So give you a couple of examples. Okay. Uh, it might be that a public body, say a school board, for, uh, for those of you who have uh, your listeners who have children out there, uh, your kids might be using a platform that's based in the United States. It might be a very large company, very sophisticated, has very sophisticated security measures, mm-hmm. uh, you w- and you want to make sure that that company is not going to misuse your child's data right? It's going to use it only for the purpose of providing that educational service. That might be perfectly okay. But in other cases, uh, the company that you're dealing with might have less rigorous security protections to what you were just saying that that makes it, for example, uh, more hackable. Mm -hmm. It might be stored in a country where there is no what we would describe as having a rule of law in, in countries, for example, like Russia come to mind, where the protections in place, uh, there, there's no recourse for individuals if things go sideways. In a case like that, you shouldn't be storing the data outside uh, the country. So uh, what happens is that these, whether it's a school board, a university, government ministry, they have to assess that risk. Now, to be clear, I mean, some of the records, that the, the day-to-day administrative records, for example, the provincial government, uh, our records, your records about vital statistics, birth, marriage, death records, all those kinds of things. These continue, and as my understanding is, and I will continue to keep an eye on this, these are stored in Canada. They're stored actually in British Columbia, the Kamloops Data Centre, mm-hmm. uh, with, a, with a backup in, in Calgary in case anything uh, should go uh, uh, wrong. But uh, So here in many regards, we're talking you know, about health authorities who may want to use virtual healthcare platforms or education um, you know, in our school system. And uh, but but if you're going to do that, if, if these school boards are going to do it, if health authorities are going to do it, again, you have to carefully assess the risk. Well, let's talk about that, because if government has gone to the extreme of writing legislation to allow this indefinitely to proceed, one would assume that the preamble to such legislation involved considerable due diligence. Are you satisfied, Privacy Commissioner, that the government of British Columbia has done sufficient diligence before uh, allowing this data sharing to go forward? Uh, I think the answer at this point is uh, I... I begin with uh, an assumption that all public bodies understand the law and understand their responsibility. But it is also, I think, part of my responsibilities as the Information Privacy Commissioner uh, to make sure 
uh, I guess it's trust but verify. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so uh, I will continue to, uh, from time to time, do audits of public bodies to see exactly how they're using uh, this newfound flexibility in the legislation uh, to ensure that indeed uh, the personal information of British Columbians is being properly uh, protected. Mr. McAvoy, do you know of other Canadian provinces uh, pursuing the same practice? Does Ontario, for example, uh, example rather, readily share data or store data offshore? So British Columbia actually was one of the few provinces, Nova Scotia would have been the other one, that had a, a prohibition on storage of data outside of Canada. And I should say it wasn't an absolute prohibition. There were certain exceptions that uh, were available. But British Columbia and Nova Scotia were... Uh, the only two provinces in the country that had such prohibition. Um, other provinces allow for storage of uh, and accessing of data outside of of uh, Canada. But again, uh, that's with uh, uh, ensuring that if, if you're going to go down that route, it needs to be properly protected. The federal government, I should say, uh, has guidelines that uh, come from its departments that don't allow for the storage of certain kinds of information outside the country. So that'd be things like your tax information, right. uh, really highly sensitive stuff that uh, should never should never leave the country. You want to make sure that you've got the, the proper protections in place. And if something goes wrong, that you have the ability to contain that. And that's um, with uh, particularly sensitive records. Um, again, those are the kind that uh, certainly at a federal level don't leave the country. At a provincial level, uh, the vital stats and so forth uh, don't leave the uh, don't leave the country. Mr. McAvoy, are you articulating these concerns independently or are you essentially expressing the concerns of a lot of British Columbians who have written or communicated with you in some way that they're really uh, antsy, nervous, anxious about this uh, domestic residency of data being abandoned? You know, I I do think... um, I I certainly hear uh, from a lot of people about this issue. You know, it's very interesting that... Uh, I think the public doesn't know a lot about the details of our freedom of information, protection of privacy legislation. But one thing that was clear to me is a lot of people knew that the storage of their data outside the country was not allowed. That Mm. was, that that was the one thing that people did recognize about the legislation. Uh, uh, And so the fact that that is now uh, gone, that prohibition has been uh, taken out of the legislation is something that has people concerned. It has, me concerned, and that's the reason our office is going to keep a very watchful eye over what public bodies are going to be doing going forward and how they're going to be using their newfound flexibility to, in some cases, look, take advantage of some pretty new and exciting technologies that, uh, you know, are going to help maybe educate our kids better or allow for virtual health care or whatever. These are, these are good things, sure. but they have to be done properly and they have to be done responsibly and they have to ensure that your data, my data, is properly protected. Indeed, security being the buzzword or the bottom line at all times. Michael McAvoy, thanks for joining us this morning, sir. Great to have you on the program. We do appreciate your taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy, very much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.